Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the National Fire Radio podcast. As 2023 gets going, we're making some changes. And so real quick, before we launch into the daily episode, I just want to hit on a couple things. If you like what you're hearing, we appreciate the support. Please give us a five-star rating on the audio players. It helps promote the podcast and get its popularity up. And I certainly appreciate all the effort that our community brings to the table in supporting us in the mission of National Fire Radio Give us that five-star review, subscribe, like the page, send us your comments. And this is the fun part about what we're doing this year. We created a new email address for you all to send us your thoughts, ideas, and comments or questions or concerns or hate or love or anything else in between. You can email us at podcast at nationalfireradio.com. What that email address will do is it will come as a direct line of source for information regarding the podcast. And so if you have anything that you want to hit us up about the podcast, sponsorship opportunities, ad reads to questions, thoughts, and ideas, we're going to be rolling out a question and answer episode once a week. And it's going to be directly from the emails that are sent in to podcast at nationalfireradio.com. So take advantage of that. Send us your thoughts and ideas and questions, and we'd love to answer them on the air. And lastly, I just got to mention our website, nationalfireradio.com, is where you can get any of the swag that we're putting out. All of the merchandise that we sell goes right back to supporting the podcast and the National Fire Radio brand. We are super excited for 2023. We have a lot coming out, and I can't wait to share it with you all. Stay tuned. Thanks for tuning in. Now, the podcast. Our first sponsor of the podcast, Taylor's Tins. Taylor and her crew have been manufacturing helmet fronts, aluminum helmet fronts, since 2017. Over 200,000-plus shields have been manufactured by Taylor and his crew. Custom helmet fronts shipped within 24 to 48 hours. Whether it's one piece to a 500-piece department order, they'll get them out under two days. They're doing incredible work, 100% customizable product. Their product is top shelf. Not only are they doing aluminum helmet fronts, they're doing gas cards, playing cards, keychains, medical cards, and charts, pump charts, street signs, custom signs, banquet awards, you name it, they're doing it. Go to taylorstins.com, and if you do order, use this promo code, NFR sent me, all one word, NFR sent me, and you'll get 15% off at checkout. That's because we have a strong relationship and friendship with Taylor from Taylor's Tins. They've been a longtime supporter of the National Fire Radio platform, and I appreciate their support and friendship. Without further ado, the daily episode. Hey, everybody. Jeremy, National Fire Radio, back on the podcast today. Today's a fun one. A guy that I've never spoken with until today. We've texted back and forth, DM'd back and forth for probably a few years now. Uh, but uh, I just, we, we never connected over the phone and put voice to conversation. I got Battalion Chief Phil Ambrose. Let me give you a little background, Phil, and then, Phil, I just want to let everybody know who you are, and then we're going to hop right into the conversation. But first off, thanks for joining me, man. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So you got 30 years in the hazmat industry. Don't get crazy, people, when you hear hazmat. We're going to break it all down today. 30 years or over 30 years in the hazmat industry, 22 years currently serving as a battalion chief in the L.A. County area. That is California. That is the other coast from where I am not from. Uh, let me think hazmatnation.com, hazmatnation on social media. You run a company, has sims. 
Uh, man, the list goes on and on, but everything comes back to the world of hazmat. You're teaching again this year, lecturing this year again at FDIC. Uh, the class is Hazmat Hot Zone Rescues the Gray Area. I'm glad we got mixed up over the last few years, and I'm very happy that we finally got together today to make this happen. Phil, give me the story, man. Hazmat. I'm not a hazmat guy. It does nothing for me. And I know the precursor to us hitting the record button today, you kind of gave me a little bit of background and I was really interested with it because the hazmat part basically came before the fire service, right? It did. I, my, my first job out of college ended up being um, hazmat related. I was an environmental health and safety technician responsible for putting liquids from brown bottles into bigger containers and radiation from experiments into other containers. And um, I got that job because uh, out of all the ones I applied for, it was the one I could roller skate to. Actually, roller blade. I'd roller blade. But, yeah, so I, I got into hazmat really almost by accident. All right, your sound is going in and out. I don't know what it is. It was fine all the way for the last half hour we were chatting, and now all of a sudden it's like super soft coming in and out. I don't know if you moved or something, but it's a little bit different. Um, I I'm, in, I'm they, in the same spot. That so is, let me know if that's perfect right there. So, they, okay, uh, let's just focus on what you just said. You wanted to roller skate to work. You wanted the roller blade. That is, California guys, man, like I'm envious of you guys. That Not something I ever would think of is part of why I wanted the job is so I could rollerblade there. Yeah, and I would have skateboarded, <laughs> but I was, no, I would have skateboarded, which is, is a handy form of transportation, but I was up in Northern California at UC Davis, and it was super flat, so there's no good hills. And really, it was just, I don't know, it was, it was easier to rollerblade than, uh, than to skateboard. Yeah. And so moving chemicals around in your bottles, uh, moving them around on campus and so on, that was a job that really introduced you to the brown bottle world of chemicals, right? Yeah. Sadly, it got to the point where I could lift up a brown bottle. And so many that have had that type of job, I could lift up a brown bottle. And by the weight of it, I could and this is as a young kid, but you do it so many times by the weight of the bottle, I can tell you that, Oh, that's chloroform. Oh, that's, that's chloroform phenol. I can tell by the, by the way it, uh, it, it spins in the bottle. Um, and yeah, it, it not, no pun intended, but you're exposed to, to so much. I probably had more volume of hazmat in that period of my life. Um, than my entire fire service career because you're just doing it every day. It's a eight hours a day dealing with chemicals. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, when you think about that though, I mean, when, when you think about hazmat right away, I always envision something on a grander scale where you're dealing with chemicals. Like I don't consider like carbon monoxide incidents um, and other types of incidents that are on a, on everyday regional response type program not to be a hazmat. Like, I don't even consider, like, fluids in a roadway from an MVA and things like that to be considered a hazmat incident. So I'm always thinking more along the lines of, like, heavy transport, you know, bulk products, flammable products, things like that. Um, what do you break down as, like, hazmat? Like, when – because I think when, as soon as the word hazmat or hazardous materials, the two words, hazardous materials, gets introduced to the conversation, people get crazy. They do. And what you just said, I mean, the carbon monoxide, it, it very much, that's, that's a typical fire service call to me, but 
it, it could be it, if it's taken, which means what does that mean? Fire service call means it's familiar to us. It means we know what we're doing with it. We're comfortable, maybe sometimes too comfortable. But as then it flips over, we're, well, now it's a hazmat call. Um, and for all good intentions, right, the, the hazmat rules, regulations, there's so much good behind that was, but I've felt that it also is that connotation that um, for, for, for the right reasons on the right call, it slows people down, but for the wrong reasons on those other calls, it slows people down and it forces them to punt the problem and say, well, that's a hazmat, that's not my job. That's, that's, that's the hazmat team's job. And that's kind of where I really got passionate about in, in my career was not just dumbing down hazmat to be a little bit more understandable, but breaking it down that let's not get too crazy on certain calls to start calling them hazmat, even though, that, because I could make the same argument that most of your fire calls are very similar to hazmat. It's just that we're more comfortable with it. We can see it. We can, we can feel it. We can feel fire. Uh, we can see the smoke. And even though it's all the same gnarly toxins that may be on a hazmat call, we're just a little more comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, could it just be because it's a cop-out because of the unknown? Because as soon as we introduce that term hazmat into the conversation, everybody likes to think that like it's above our operational skill set. And so we're just going to sit back and let the professionals that handle hazmat come in and deal with it. Yeah. And it, this is, I mean, I don't need anybody that, I mean, I absolutely appreciate those that are, that, that have been working on say NFPA committees and regulations and all that. And I think a lot of them would agree. So I'm qualifying it to say that they're different than in EMS, right? You don't stop on a person not breathing and say, you know what? I need a qualified respiratory therapist or on your trauma, you stop and say, I need a surgeon, I'm, I'm handing this over. And for, for good reason, the regs kind of broke down the levels, the fro, the tech spec. But I guess what has always been a, say, a sore spot with me, but the title has not specialist. Well, I, I don't mean to give away any secrets, but I think it's six weeks of class in <laughs> California. Yeah. Um, um, not unlike say paramedic school or a lot of other things, you don't fail. I mean, I, I don't think there's anybody that started on day one of hazmat school and actually didn't graduate unless they didn't show up, eat a donut and sign the sheet. I mean, I'm not saying that the training isn't outstanding, but we've overused this term specialist where you get it uh, because you took that six weeks of training participation, but, man. Yeah. If, if you had a, uh, a, a, a an orthopedic injury that was driving you nuts and you went to a specialist and you found out that that specialist just had a certificate on the wall that they went to a six week class for, <laughs> you might rethink, right? Yeah. hundred percent, so, man. So, and that's, that's, you know, that's picking on say my own people, but on the same regard, when you have, it's no different than the firefighter that says, you know what? I didn't sign up for EMS. I signed up to fight fires. Well, <laughs> it's, almost now 100% of what we do ends up in EMS. So on the same regard, the firefighter, this is not every hazmat, that's for the hazmat team. My issue became how many times has a hazmat team rescued somebody? And that, that didn't sit well with me because I've, I've been a hazmat team member. Um, now the, 
take a stab and have a majority of my living years on Earth have been somehow involved on the hazmat team, and hazmat teams don't affect the rescue. So what I became passionate about is how to preach and how to give skills to um, at least let people know that there are things they can do to increase the survivability of somebody that may be in a situation that is a hazardous environment, i.e. even a hazmat that could be saved by somebody that does not have the title hazmat specialist. Uh, and that's, that's kind of where I focus on in my class and a lot of the things I do with even you know, that has some invention just to bring some realism to the training and take it to an operations level. Because if we make it so mysterious, and so I always use the word Rubik's Cube and Calculus, because even though I was a mechanical engineer in college, uh, Rubik's Cubes and Calculus kicked my rear end, um, both of which. <laughs> so if you make it too complicated, it's easy to A, send it off to somebody else, uh, or B, just, uh, you know, it, scared of something get in front of it and figure it out so that's that's a lot of what i do not only in my class but it's a big reason of like the reason i invented has well there's a lot of things there right i mean you know when when you talk about hazardous materials and how many rescues are being made by hazmat specialists right meaning you know we have a hazmat incident we call a team out by the time the team gets there uh, you know, uh, sizes up the scene. They they break down their equipment. They get dressed. All the things they have to do, right? The chances are it's a recovery. I, I you know, and that's just how my mind plays through it because there's not there's not. I don't believe to be quickness on the on a scene when a hazmat team needs to arrive because they have to be methodical about their approach and how they operate. But I, I think where a lot of the gray, and that's part of the gray area, right, is what you're speaking about, is how do guys like myself that roll up on an engine company determine what we can and can't do on that initial arrival and response, especially if we have victims involved? You know, you made a good point before, and I'd like to, for you to speak to it a little bit. But, like, when we arrive as, like, an engine company or a truck company and we got a structural fire, we go to work. We go in that building. Right. It's it's. And so yeah. there, there's not a question of, you know, that we're not going to go in, obviously, unless the the situation warrants we can't get in. Right. But we're always going to try to make that initial interior uh, search and fire attack and everything else. Right. In from the inside out. Why does that vary and in, in differ on the mindset for first responding companies in prior to hazmat teams getting there about determining what our level of abilities is? are well I've, I've still been trying to figure that out because uh, on one level you take it from say the hazmat specialists are people that teach to hey there's specialists there's operations there's fraud which is true there's, there's first responder awareness first responder operations and there's always the question is hey am i allowed to turn that valve or am i am i allowed just to call and tell people to turn off that valve and i get all that and a lot of it's industry driven um, but I just, my focus is then you throw in there, okay, now you got a rescue. <laughs> so, and I just know that you and I both, and probably most people listening to this, we'd have a real tough time sitting there watching, say, somebody burn um, as we, you know, unfortunately, probably both of us have, have witnessed in our lives in various scenarios or watching something. It's, it's very difficult. So, how can we how can we clear up that gray area to make it yeah a little more and so 
drawing those connections. So I, I'm not sure. And I know some of them were large, large, large incidents, right? The, 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 the man or woman that came up with the old rule of thumb, I talk about that in my class, right? It's, I hate it. But the rule of thumb, you know, the old stick the thumb over yeah. the incident and other people say, oh, the, the rule of donut where you put the donut around it and you see uh, all that is if you have a large scale, you know, like they just had recently in where was it, Indiana, Illinois, somewhere, the refinery explosion. Yeah, I saw that. Your, mm-hmm. your Bhopal, India, or any of these things that are just big, where no, no single engine resource is going to be able to handle that incident. But then, yeah, that's fun and games to think, oh, well, that's, that's, but you know what, guess what? Somebody's got to, even Chernobyl, right? Somebody eventually had to uh, start going in there. Now that's way beyond the rescue phase. So let's just go to the rescue phase. You go risk versus gain. And now you're talking about someone that, um, you know, like chemical suicide's a, a big one. It, it got, got my attention because we had a few. I started studying it. Um, a lot of the classes, and they're good classes, especially if you're a hazmat person, they talk about the chemistry of it, which is great. But the the, 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 the person in their car that's mis- mixing chemicals that wants to end their life that really got my attention was, for one, I, a lot of people, especially if you throw it up on social media, the keyboard warriors were saying, well, God, we too dangerous, we're not going to help that person. Um, or no way am I, am I touching that, that's hazmat. Right. Um, but then what I would always throw out, it's like, okay, you, you're given that scenario. You're a single single company, meaning single engine company, and you're called to that, and there's a car seat in the back, and there's a kid. So now right. what? Now, now, okay, now, so now maybe the, the, the individual that, that, that caused all this, maybe you're not a fan of, of, of their, you know, religion, politics, whatever it is that took them, you know, that made you decide that you're going to write them off, but now there's somebody innocent involved. And so what I like to go through in my class is don't let the regs tell you that you can't still put on your, your turnouts, which aren't level A, um, and your SCBA that gives you great respiratory protection and that you can't go up there and take a look and you can't go in there and, and break a window and, and affect a rescue. So we, we break it. I break it down and I use examples and case studies, but I really just want more thought put in to what would you do? Because if I if somebody leaves my class, at least the next time they're doing lineup, um, I think it's always important to talk about. Uh, yes, if you're on a truck company. You know, you got an overtime crew, and you want to make sure everybody's on the same page with the hand signals, with our riff offs, with same thing with engine company. But you're you've got a, a brand new crew, you've got a rookie, you've got some overtimers. You want to size everybody up. So, I, I challenge that I don't think that at the, the morning lineup, whether you're doing it at the tailboard or the kitchen table, I don't think people talk about, hey, we walk in on a suspected medical call, it's two people down, and it's a severe CO exposure. What are we doing? We just had that in, uh, in my city just recently. I'm going to add it to my class. Yeah. It was a classic example, um, and I, I'm going to use it because – they, they walked in on a medical call that I think nine out of 10 people would have assumed it was uh, a fentanyl run, a Narcan run, right? right. Two people passed out. Um, and it happened to be that it was two workers using an uh, internal combustion engine in, during construction inside of a very sealed up house. Happening um, all the time. I've seen it here. I can't <laughs> even tell you how many times. Yeah. They, they ended up, they, 
man, what a sharp crew. The, the captain and the first medic that were in the door hustled back to the rig and put on their SCBA uh, and went in and drug the guys out and, uh, and, and, and started working on the, the, uh, the hazmat team did get called. And I'm pretty sure the hazmat team, by the time the hazmat team set their maxis at that scene, the two individuals were already transported to the hospital. And I right. bring it up because I guarantee you, and I have some that I've documented some either mining from the news or people call me about that, that exact same scenario if an RP met at the door and said, man, there's two guys passed out. I think there's some sort of gas in there. There's a high likelihood of somebody could have said, yep, I'm calling the hazmat team. Yeah. And you and I both know uh, you're, you're now looking at a recovery because by the time the hazmat team went in and monitored the air, it was uh, well, still well over the IDLH, even with uh, the, 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 the source having already choked itself out and turned off. So those are the calls. It's a career call, right? It, it's not one you get um, – not not one anyone may get in a, in a 30 year career, but I'm trying to help that if they do, they, they make the right call or at least they set it up correctly. I'm not trying to get anybody um, hurt. I'm not trying to send anybody into an environment they shouldn't. Just trying to prove that a lot of these, um, I'm not saying they're not unsafe, but if we do some of the same tactics we would, if there was red stuff everywhere, you can, you can still manage to save a life or at least include it up the percentages of survival. Yeah. I, I mean, education so huge, right? Because like with something like this, everybody's afraid of the unknown. And so, you know, if you don't take that extra second to do that recon, say on that like carbon monoxide incident where they're running combustion, internal combustion engines in, in a closed space, I've, I think I've been on probably two, three, maybe four of those runs. Over the years, you know, where they're doing, uh, you know, the breaking concrete in the basement of the home, you know, and they're running a fan to uh, eliminate the, you know, the, the dust while they're working and, and, you know, and so on. Or running a, a saw, you know, a, uh, a um, combustion saw cutting concrete, like things like that. It's happened numerous times uh, in, in my first two. And so, like, it's understanding and taking a second to really be educated and understanding to, to take a moment to figure it out. And, and I think that that's, what's important. And, and it, it, we need more of a, a real time, real approach to educating ourselves when it comes to hazmat. I mean, we, we were talking, you, you mentioned the four gas meter, right. And like things like that, I think we overcomplicate things. Talk to me a little bit about your philosophy on that. I, well, cause what I recognize and, 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 and I'm, I'm that person also, just, just to clarify, so I'm not pissing anybody off, as firefighters, we're expected to know quite a bit. Oh, 100%. In, yep. You, and you if we don't, we're supposed to. And if you don't, you yeah. figure it out. Yeah. And, and there's the Eversol quote about the uh, decathlete brain surgeon, and it's so true. But we're expected to know quite a bit. And I, I saw this as a firefighter, then I saw it as a station captain. Is, And it's because of that. Guys are... And then there's a handful of guys that just, they do stay on their game all the time, but man, guys are, whether they're going through a divorce or whether they got their personal stuff going on, now they're trying to stay engaged and they're trying to remember. And when it comes to a, a four gas meter, now you've got somebody from hazmat that's already given them, made it mysterious, right? Which already just says, eh, well, 
hey, he's the SME or she's the SME. I, I, I have a tough time with that one too. Because if you've got an expert in your department, it's great. You know, celebrate them. But the best thing that expert can do is bring everybody up to a higher level because uh, um, that expert's going to be you know, in Bora Bora when the next incident happens. So what happens with the four gals is, yes, they're limited. Uh, you know, we start, we, if you really get in the, the, the weeds about it, well, it's a four gas, which means if it doesn't have chlorine on there, you're not going to detect chlorine. Well, hey, no, I'm a meter <laughs> expert. I could tell you, I could, I could tell you based on the way this thing, uh, you know, the oxygen displace, displacement that it's this and that in there. So we, we overcomplicate it. Now, people do have to understand the implications, right? And it's easier for a fireman to understand, well, fog stream versus straight stream. It's a little more visual, but the meter is still a pretty powerful tool, but guess what? It doesn't, it isn't worth a darn if you don't use it. If you don't use it, it it's not going to help you. So right. my philosophy on things like that, if it's a piece of equipment that can, that can be used and hey, maybe it's not a primary thing on the example I gave with the CO call, um, I wouldn't expect them to run back and grab the forecast. I want them to run back and get their air bottle, right? Their SCBA and, and initiate a rescue. Although I would think that if, if after they had affected the rescue and now they're thinking about a secondary search, now they might go, Hey, let's bring in a couple of things with us. And one of those might be the, the, the forecast, but don't make it your first time really using it when you need it. So my philosophy on it is from a hazmat perspective, if you're a hazmat team member, if you're just showing off about how much you know about the meter and how the internal functions work, that's not going to help. When when you're doing AED training to the public, does the public really need to know about biphasic, monophasic number of joules? No, they just need to know how to place the stickers on and restart the heart. That's it. That's yeah. just simple. So same with the forecast. What it comes down to, to me is it better turn on because if it turns on, the batteries aren't even live um that, that's yes your first problem it better turn on you better at least know how to to turn it on fresh air cow which is simple and then have a basic understanding of the readings that's that's really it and with with handsome why i invented that is now if you're going to go train the reason why forecast is nobody trains with them is because hey let's do a let's do an overturned um a propane tank that's leaked propane into the local mall. Let's all walk around with our foregas and uh, see where the uh, explosive environment is. Well, that would be a lame drill if you just said, hey, walk around. Hey, guess what? You got a high reading over there. So, um, hey, guess what? You have no reading. Nobody's going to care. It's no fun. So with HazSim, it looks, sounds, feels like a, a real detector but it's controlled by the instructor. So now I can send an engine company into the mall and say, hey, there's been a propane leak, um, go clear this building, clear my exposures. And they're gonna walk in and if, if I wanna give them some LEL, I can, I can add, I add that reading and they'll get that experience. They know it's training, but they're getting real readings and then I can challenge them with, hey, what are you gonna do? So you just walked into a room and the LEL is at uh, four and a half percent. What do you do? What, what are you thinking? Uh, and that's that's kind of why I, that's that's my opinion on four gases. And it's a tool that's valuable to you. Know how to use it. Don't overthink it either, though. You should know the limitations, but um, know the basics. Yeah, a couple things Don't be there. Surprised. Yeah, a couple things. I think the the one thing that you mentioned was has sim, and then you breezed right by it. But it should be said that this is a company that uh, you have started because why? Because you saw a hole 
in the training sector when it came to hazmat, right? Like you, like oh, you said, God. walking around, walking around a mall looking for the explosive limit of, uh, of propane, right? If you're not getting any reaction on your meters, it becomes a complacent drill that you're, you're, you're getting your steps in and you're going back to the rig and going back and pretending that you're getting readings, right? Whereas what you've been able to do now is create a product that allows for a more active training ground when it comes to hazmat, right? Yeah. And it was, uh, I mean, what's the best kind of training, man, an acquired structure with a live fire drill where you're really getting, you know, you're dipping your saw into a roof with flames coming out. Um, you're actually squirting water on, on real fire and feeling the heat. Um, you, 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 you are, you're, you're, you're getting low, not because the instructor told you to get low, but because it's, it's wicked hot. Well, yeah, with 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 hazmat, that's what drove me nuts. Is we would do these drills and we would pretend, pretend, pretend. Somebody would uh, reach over. Can you imagine if somebody reached over, tapped you on the shoulder, and said, "Hey, good job. The uh, the fake flame that you're just shooting at that you can't even see because it doesn't exist. It's now out." So yeah, right. yeah the readings yeah. change. And you know, I I was I was a little annoyed by the lack of of any sort of realism and. Yeah, ideally, if we can, like the training I went to and where you could use real pro- product, that's that's cute. But you can only do that in in very limited uh, places. And, and even then, it wasn't, say, as real as I can make it with the HazSim. And that so how, does, how does it work? Break it down for me. Oh, well, the, the, the device itself, it like I said, it looks, sounds, feels like a, a detection meter. Right. I have actually had... Early in the company when I traveled a lot more, and, and even now, I've had people using it that thought it was a real – I had – and I won't name the team, but it was a pretty high-level team that was like, wow, how are you getting this radiation reading in this building? How you, where's the source? I'm like, dude. <laughs> Um, they thought it was it, a real meter. I mean, it so it it, it, it simulates. Absolutely uh, yeah. thought I brought in some sort of you know gamma radiation source. Um, so oh yeah, my gosh! Then, yeah, but but it's uh, it's it's connected uh, basically now through the cloud. So the instructor then has a tablet that controls the meter, so I can I can send readings. So let's say we recreate that um, uh, that scenario at the mall. Hey, you know. Engine one, while engine two is stretched a line and spraying foam, I need you to check the exposures for the LEL. So now you're walking around and I can I can raise or lower the LEL. And then a few other things we had added um, is a, a question and answer feature. So now, you know, I, somebody's somebody's getting it or maybe they're not. I can send them a question and at very simple yes, no questions. And. The whole idea was a to challenge during the evolution, but then to be able to have some some feedback, some data, if you will, to come back and say, "Hey, you guys, I, I asked you these questions, and you did well, you didn't do well, and, and give them an idea for it." Because uh, another example I like to talk about, I've, I've talked about in, in in other formats. I was at Urban Shield in Boston a few. Uh, yeah, it was more than a couple of years ago now. Anyways, it was a USAR scenario. It started out as a, they used the HazSim initially because it was a dirty bomb, and now we're now the dirty bomb went off. They they surveyed for radiation. Everything's clear now. The USAR team's doing their thing, right? So a lot of bah, 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 jackhammers and saws, and we're standing there watching the team. They're doing a phenomenal job. They're 
if it's a pancaked uh, structure from an explosion, they're going in to rescue the dummy. And all you see is dust and then uh, uh, smoke. Yeah. Um, and they're running all these tools. And so I had a, a deputy chief of special ops go, hey, you know what? They need ventilation. I'm going to go tell them they need ventilation. I go, sir, hold up a minute. Yeah, here well, you they go. Still right. had, they, they still had a kid. It was a, it was a technically a confined space type thing. So they still had a kid, a firefighter that had one of the Hasims. And, you know, he was probably half asleep by that point because he wasn't, you know, getting to do the fun stuff with the saws and, you know, it's USAR, so they're tying knots and doing whatever they do. Well, I start making his HASM alarm for carbon monoxide and I start lowering the oxygen. So now he went from sleepy state to uh-oh. And if, if I had it on video, it would be classic because he looks at the meter, the HASM, and what do you think he did? Like classic fireman. He turns to the closest fireman and shows him like, what yeah, right. Right. <laughs> I mean, it was like, huh? And then you see the other one running over to the, the, the USAR trailer and pulling out the ventilation fan. And yeah. I looked at the chief. I go, if you had told them to do that, they would have never really learned it. It might have stuck a little bit. But he just had an absolute experience. And my hope is that he went back and said, man, I was looking at the meter and the CO was going crazy. And he lived that because – the scenario I just – the real call I just told you about that happened with the two victims down, when I interviewed the captain, who's a friend of mine, a super good fire captain, he had said that what triggered him that it, this wasn't a fentanyl run, this was something in the air, was a previous experience he had. And so it makes me go, wow, as a now a 22-year fire guy, 30-plus-year hazmat guy, there's going to be that 18-, 19-year-old kid that walks in on that call because – you know, they're riding the ambulance and they're first in. And I want to at least give them some chance from those experiences that are going to help them so they don't end up being the victim on that call. Yeah, 100%. I love that. I mean, that's how we learn, right? I mean, we learn through experience. And yeah, the chief could have went over and the chief could have went over and said, hey, you need a fan in here, right? And and meanwhile, man, that kid got it loud and clear. He's not going to forget that. Yeah, got it loud and clear. And, and how they would have, it was, it was exactly the same way they if you're on a confined space drill and you're the one as the attendant monitoring the air, you're just sitting there with the meter. In fact, you'll just set it down because nothing's going to change because it's just a training scenario and that's right. you're, you're not expecting anything. So that's it, 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 the genesis of the product with a lot of those things, including I, I really see the value of throwing in some unexpected things and challenging. And then the outcome being, all right, now I, I've had that experience. I, I, I get it a little better. So yeah, that was, that was where it started. And then, um, you know, silly firefighter with an idea and then it became a product and now we're, we're selling them. Uh, we're, 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 what do I say? Prestige worldwide. We're now uh, in Australia and South Korea. Nice. Now do you offer, sure. you offer training with that as well and so on. So you'll travel and, and do training and so forth. Well, I, I, I love being married, and I, I wanted my kids to, to still like me, so I don't do as much of the travel as I did. But, yes, every every system gets training. Our, our lead trainer is actually an Ottawa, Canada firefighter, so if you also need training in French. Um, we did a lot of hands-on training pre-pandemic, and now we're kind of getting back to it. So, yes, but um, remember we talked about why is hazmat so mysterious? Yeah. Like my goal with the product, I had – I had three goals, and I'm finally there. One was 
I want to make this thing in the United States. And anybody that's ever had a company, it's especially something more tech-based and if it's got batteries and wires, it's not easy. It's really not easy to, to just build things in the United States. I wanted to bring down the cost and make it affordable for more departments because uh, I think it's more than just the hazmat tool. But lastly, I don't want my own product to be that mysterious device that requires me to go out there and train them. Got so it. Every generation has been the biggest compliment I get is they go, got it. Hey, we could teach the class because we already, we figured it out already. So, and that's, that's just because if, if, if I made the product just as mysterious as we've made hazmat, and believe me, there's a lot of good reasons why hazmat so special, but at the same time, it's a big scam we've been running for years, right? The, the hazmat team knows more than everybody else. I, I wanted my product to be something that would be easy for, for anyone to understand and to, to be able to conduct training. Yeah, no, that's uh, it makes sense. And I think you, something you said before, too, when you were talking about like meters and, and training in-house, just company training on, say, your, your simple CO meter or your, you know, multi-gas meters is don't overcomplicate it, right? Like, you know, when typically when you have a specialist, that's when they like to strut their stuff and they like to show everybody how smart they truly are. And that's what turns everybody off, right? And so you take the smartest guy in the room that knows that meter inside and out and he turns it into, you know, too much, too heavy uh, and too complicated so that he can show off he knows what he's doing and then everybody else sitting there just gets turned off by it. Whereas if they just brought it down to a street level, I mean, I, I firmly believe that the training we do needs to be super dumbed down and street level so that it hits with everyone. I, it was one of your other podcasts I was just listening to, and I have listened to several. And well, thank now you. I forget that, 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 but, but, talking about just that with with rescue and where your mind goes but yeah it needs to be i have a it's not a saying it's a reality i bring down the average iq in any room i walk into yeah Um, i always say i like being the dumbest guy in the room for sure and i tell you it's yeah it's not everywhere but i i find two things it's either that or it's not just being complacent because, right, it's easy to show up at the station and get your stuff close to the rig, get some coffee, go complain about the, the latest events, get a workout. We all know that some are engaged more than others. And then everybody has their – it's also like professional athletes, right? Some guys, they're, they're in season, and then they, they, they kind of drop off a little bit. But making your drill – there's a time and a place for it. If you've, if you've got somebody that's about to take the engineer's exam and you want to really challenge them with a big water drill and, and lots of stuff coming at them, which is a very, right. That's just a, that's, that's hardware heavy. That's lots of hoses, lots of water. There's time to to challenge. But when it comes to most training that we, we stray from the basics every time. And then it usually the, the result is that then people are less likely to want to train again. Um, just keep it simple. See, let's keep it really simple. Yeah. So talk to me then about how I need to become more enthralled with hazmat because truthfully it does nothing for me. And I know you have a background in it. You have a passion for it. You've created software and, and, and uh, you know, your has some program, which certainly is bettering the training abilities for fire companies. What are, what are things that I need to do? Because the people listening to this, 
probably are very similar in my world where we don't do a tremendous amount of hazmat. The operational level that we train to to ride on the apparatus means I can throw speedy dry down or absorbent. I can uh, go to CO alarms and I can identify, like you said, with my thumb how far away I need to be. But street-level conversation, we need to take a little bit further. I know, like, uh, drug labs, fentanyl, right, especially fentanyl right now, is a very common problem in everybody's territory, everybody's district. What are some things there, maybe some misnomers, things that, you know, you can actually talk about to make us realize that it's not as big of an issue when dealing with it as a firefighter? Like, just break it down for me a little bit, because I think there's a lot of misnomers there for the first responder. Well, on the first part, I would just say that pretty much, and I'm sitting right now looking at the couch and the, and we all know that now things burn hotter. They burn with a lot more chemicals. So my argument would be, I don't care what level of hazmat you are. If you're fighting fire, you're dealing with hazardous materials. It's just uh, in that burning state. Uh, And then I'm I'm very passionate about that too, because clean your gear, don't get cancer because everybody now knows somebody that has had cancer. and, And if you are that person and you've suffered, like we're talking, there is no like cancer light, right? Any cancer. I don't yeah, care right. if it's, you just got scooped something off of your skin and, and the chances of, of survival are 102%, it's still cancer. So being just aware that everything around us is kind of a hazardous material. The other with fentanyl, wow, it's, um, well, I'm not saying it's not a dangerous uh, product, but I'd say you look at the, you look at what it's intended to do and that people take it to, uh, to, I guess in their world, have a, have a good time, go to another place to get addicted to it. I do see, yes, you're right. Is it is now everywhere in every district. Um, uh, there's some great, if, if you, any firefighter, uh, Sam Quinones, um, there's a great book called the least of us, which is just a really good read. It is not a hazmat book and it's not a firefighter book, but it's very much a first responder because it talks about say fentanyl and heroin and how fentanyl well, what and, was the name of that book? meth got it. The Least of Us. Okay. There's a great article, I could text it to you, um, that Sam Quinones wrote in the Atlantic magazine that covers it all. And, and I bring it up because what we see on the street, like none of us are psychologists, none of us are surgeons and all that stuff, but we deal with people on the street and drugs. Uh, with fentanyl, the hysteria now is, you know, if you if you touch it, you will pass out and die. Um, I just, hey, treat it like, the hoarder home where the, 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 the person you're going to pick up off the floor had spent the last three months, you know, pooping all over the place. How do we walk into those places? Very carefully. <laughs> Just don't get any yeah, on you. Exactly. Um, that's, that's what, it, and I can't be any more basic than that. You pull up in big red and you're right next to a, a, a grass median. What's the first thing you're thinking of? Well, I'm not going to step in dog and or, yep. you know, human poop. So just do the same thing on the other calls. The base don't get any on you, but um, the there is quite a bit of hysteria for dermal contact fennel. I'm not an expert in that. I, I follow some people that are very good at that thing, but all I know is most fentanyl that ends up in front of us that has been either from a traffic stop that we got called to or somebody that OD, it's already touched so many human hands to get there that um, I'm a li- not even as a longtime hazmat person, but just in general observation, there's a 
quite a bit of a hysteria about touching it, but it reminds me of, remember anthrax? Remember when, not just the Yeah, brain? 100%. Yep. Yep. Right. Uh, anthrax. I, I was on hazmat way in, way before even uh, September 11th, where we would shut down city blocks for a white letter, uh, a white powder letter call, um, because we really, we didn't totally know. And, and even the ones of us that did know the IC would, you know, Hey, let's, let's shut down an entire train terminal because there's a little white powder here. Let's shut down an entire um, section of town. And then we learned. And now when we, when we do get calls like that, it's a very different call. I think that'll eventually happen with fentanyl. Um, but I do know the stuff I follow, like, I'm not sure I challenge somebody to please reach out and let me know of a first responder that was killed from a fentanyl exposure from a call. And I'm not saying not to be careful. It's not what I'm saying. No, I get it. And, and I, I know. I think it's it's a hysteria where it's like, come on. Um, yeah, and there's there's been a couple in current events within the last few weeks where it turned out that it was more hysterics and anxiety and a panic attack as as a first responder touched it or came in contact with it other than the exposure itself. It wasn't the exposure that made the person pass out or, or have uh, any type of complications. It was really more mental and uh and that's where i think well, go ahead yeah what was that saying and was it a movie or but did they die but did they die though like it sounds really callous but um a lot of people read the headlines and they go did you see that it's like well did you read two weeks later buried on you know page 10 exactly now that actually or usually they don't follow up with it because i get it we we both are in say a media space where sure Hey, current events and hot topics. I mean, they're they're fun to talk about. And then when the rest of the story comes out, it's not going to really get the same sort of hits. So, yeah, and that's um, the juice. Be aware, though. but don't be silly. And that's the juice. I think we got to be able to get down to the street level to educate our own people. And those are conversations that need to happen. That like what what exposure actually is, what it will do, what it looks like, you know, and and so on. And I think those are part of those street level conversations when it comes to training. And if you want to lump that into hazardous materials, that's fine. I think we need to talk more about it. And I think that that's uh, more important because we're going to set our people up for a better understanding. If we can deliver street smart information through training on a topic like hazmat that we all get squirrely about as soon as we hear those words, if we can deliver it in a way that doesn't allow for people to get consumed by the words themselves, we should be okay. I, I can't think of a better way to say it. Very, very well said. And, and, and especially what fentanyl all of a sudden early on and still now became a hazmat issue. <laughs> it's like, well, you know, every, every kid that gets their, you know, fingers stuck in a, in, in a playground equipment, is that the technical rescue team? It may be, you may need their help, but I would think that a single patient in a, in a, in a, in a, in a small extrication, I hope that your big red can handle most of those calls. I'm not saying don't call the, the specialist that may have some better tools, but I would hope that you could at least initiate. So everything we even talk to, I'm talking about generally single, maybe two victim uh, circumstances involving chemicals, not your giant chemical plant that just went up on fire, not advocating for a crew to, to mask up and, and go in and, and roll the dice necessarily. But um, yeah, it's interesting stuff. I'm, I, I hope people talk about it more. And I, it, it's, it's that classic uh, right now, if, if, you name the city, 
their city management or their fire chief came out and said, hey, we're going to rename the fire department fire and rescue. They, you know, the, the viral hits on all the fire sites would go crazy. Oh, man, we're not fire or, or, or most make it worse, fire and EMS. We're the fire department. It's like, well, we could be that. You can call us the fire department. But I know that as just a public citizen, the expectation is that we pretty much do everything. So yeah. whether you're paid or not paid, you're a professional. You, you need to get into what you're doing. And um, back to the even the hazmat topic, if you've got if you are the hazmat team or if you've got one within five minutes from your your first two. But a lot of what I talk about revolves around the fact that your regional hazmat team may be 45 minutes out. And even the local hazmat team that was only one district away from that CO call I talked about, they still did not set the maxis until the victims were already transported. So that, that call to me went textbook. And I, I talk about it because I certainly don't, there has been many more and some I have documented where it didn't go that route. They, they, they pulled the hazmat card, which meant everything slowed down. Right. And uh, so cool stuff. I mean, yeah, for sure. For, for being sure. hazmat, at least. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you this, right? So as we're starting to wind down a little bit here, talk to me about um, anything new on the horizon for hazardous materials, the lessons learned, things that over time, I mean, hazmat now, I know it's been around for obviously a very, very long time, but I think what, 70s and 80s is really when the hazmat, um, so what are we looking at? Maybe 50 years hazmat's really been a topic within the fire service and emergency services um, and it's become much more prevalent. And I think as time has ticked on, you know, and technology has increased and our abilities to manufacture and using different types of chemicals and compounds and all that, that it gets more and more complicated. Is there anything out there that we, I know electric vehicles, lithium ion, like those are things that hazmat companies are starting to deal with more and more. Um, anything, you know, in line with that, that you want to hit on? Well, that, that's, a, that's a good one you mentioned. Uh, I remember when solar started getting big and we started tracking even in our, in our CAD, right, whether or not a structure had solar panels on the roof so the truck company would be aware. And I thought, oh, that's good intel. Uh, and none of that's bad. No, no, situational awareness is good situational awareness. But at the same time, I thought, well, I – when I was on the truck company and engine company, I went with the philosophy that every structure has a basement until I prove otherwise. Right. Because we had sections of our town. Some did, some didn't. Some were hillside. Why? Because I'm always just thinking of fire below. And it's just an easy way to do it. Electric vehicles, wow, whole new uh, genesis, right? Um, my wife's had a Tesla since uh, they started. We've never had one blow up on it. But yes, it's 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 a wild technology. I am zero expertise in it. Although, yeah. keep aware, I got to go out to inner shoots, so I got to meet. The, I would say the Europeans they've been dealing with some of the stuff more than we have. Sure, it was really eye opening being out. I highly recommend. Inner shoots won't be around for a few more years in uh, Germany, but I highly recommend going. It was kind of a life changer. You know, you know what I find really interesting and I'd love your take on it too. And correct me if I'm wrong in anything I'm about to say, but what's, what's crazy is the European market has been dealing with, uh, you know, EV fires, lithium ion fires uh, for a little bit longer than we have. And so they have some more methodology that has been applied 
to mitigating extinguishment and everything else in between when it comes to dealing with these types of situations. The American Fire Service loves to push back against the European Fire Service and their methodology, right? So I'm yeah. I'm sitting here watching different departments that I love departments that have like their first Tesla fire. And then they go like, oh, my God, how are we going to combat? We had to bury the car in a pit with water and like there's so many different things. And it's funny, not funny, but to sit back as an as an outsider, because I haven't had to deal with it yet. Right. Which is which is why it's funny for me. But to sit back and watch different departments try to come up with ways of dealing with this. And yet the European model on a couple of ways that they're handling things. I don't see many of their thoughts and ideas getting rolled into to the daily conversation here. And that's fun for me to watch. Um, it's, it guess. is comical. There's that resistance. And it's so funny after sitting and drinking beer, which but by the way, the inner shoots by, they say 3 PM, but really it was like 1 PM. They, every booth has beers as part of the, as part of the, day in germany that's why i didn't go this year because uh well i don't know if i ever would have made it home but anyway that's a whole nother conversation (laughs) but they when they find out you're an american firefighter i mean highly regarded i might as well have been john wayne himself so that i find that interesting and i was fascinated because of course most of our uh (laughs) at least when you look at social media just just bring up the topic of Leather versus plastic versus oh, Euro yeah, helmet, right, and, and you know, it's it, it just like, oh, okay, let's 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 stop the caveman conversation and actually go to. It was it was really interesting seeing, and I, you know, I I met the people I met, so yeah, maybe sure. I just met the ones that were more innovative. But some of their techniques and things, I was like, wow, and like they're like, oh, you guys don't do this, I'm like, no, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, uh, and. Up to and including how they attack uh, attic fires, and of course it's different. They've got buildings that are hundreds and hundreds of years old. So uh, yeah, uh, all I can say about the EVs is, man, it's it's here. It's something. There's some really sharp people out there. Yeah. Paul Rogers, former FDNY, has Matt. You know, Adam Lynch, who's still on the uh, on uh, the, the squad, that are that are really kind of being pioneers because I, I think it'll, it'll keep changing. But to your point, once everybody starts having them, I mean, my example, which sucks is it has no example, but anthrax, I mean, everybody went ancient. It. it was, it was yeah. shut down city blocks. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Sure. Oh my God. And then it mellowed out because more and more of them happened. Like, okay. And I, I don't mean get complacent on it, but wow. Um, I saw the fire blanket in action for car fire, just putting a blanket on yeah. the reaction, at least the social media reaction. But when you physically watched, and I'm thinking, I've, I've got first two areas like you do with parking structures galore, sure. getting an engine and a hose line. I mean, you got it, we call it an apartment lay, but to get water to any fire. And I thought, geez, me and the, the local security guard off duty can grab this thing and cover this car in the early stages. And the fire's out. I mean, I, I, I watched, I was there for the demonstrations. I was like, wow, this is really cool. And we posted some stuff on Hazmat Nation and some of the comments. Oh, I know, like, right? That's my favorite hilarious. part. Yeah, absolutely. That's my favorite part. Yeah. I actually, it is my favorite part, too. I actually just did a post today on, on social media where I, I green screened one of the comments. It was a simple tank to pump valve, and, and people are 
you know, depending on how you do it, you know, ter- <laughs> territories that, that, yeah, you know, and guys that keep their pumps wet 365 days a year, sometimes what they'll do is design the valve backwards so that it's when the valve's pushed in, it's open and out is closed because they never keep it closed. So why have the valve sticking out all the time where somebody might step on it, you know, if you're climbing up to the dunnage area, whatever. So they keep it closed. And then everybody's like, nope, that's wrong. That's not how it's done. They're backwards. They're dyslexic. All these comments. And I'm like, wait, <laughs> it, it makes sense. Like, it makes sense for them. Why is it an issue? But, of course, it's not what people know, so it's vilified. And and I just – that's the fun part about our traditional, traditional industry, right? It, yep, there are people that will – they would – they would get out of breath arguing about a helmet and they'd probably be out of breath even putting on a helmet, but their priorities are just a little different. I love it. Even going back to the hazmat. I mean, you make it a little more mysterious. You make it calculus. You make it something that's easily punted. Then everybody says, Nope, that's not my job. And that's, that's kind of been my passion to, to bring that back to, yeah, actually it is your job. Well, it's, it's in you, it. You, you know, <laughs> your rule of thumb, you, you better go through your pinky, your ring finger, your middle finger. Your ind- you better go through some other options before you get to that rule of thumb because uh, that is based that in a lot of ways that's that's giving up your hose line. That's uh, the analogy I've used before. You pull up and for whatever reason, all you have is a, is a booster line and you're going into a large commercial fire that needs lots of GPM. Are you going to just sit there and go, you know what, let's wait five minutes until somebody else shows up to, you know, you, Let's, let's start, and I'm not saying action just to have action, but, man, if you don't have a plan and you don't execute some sort of measures, uh, you're in the wrong profession. Well, my man, thank you, Chief. I think uh, the conversation was a lot of fun today. Um, I think what you're doing with your with your class and your company is bringing a more involved uh more involved type of culture in the fire service, hazardous materials and bringing it down to the street level to educate guys like myself so that we're more comfortable in having conversations and dealing with it. And I think that making that gap, you know, bridging that gap between what the unknown to the known and finding a way to deliver that information matters. And I think you're doing a nice job with that. So Phil, thank you for joining me today on the podcast. Truly appreciate it, brother. Thank you. I'm glad we finally were able to connect. Um, Hazmat Nation on Instagram. Buy our merch. My uh, high school son, who <laughs> manages the account, will be will be happy. So uh, uh, yeah, that's no. cool. That's I love and that. Hit, hit me up on those. Yeah, he yeah. <laughs> he's lots of trips to the PO box, but uh, um, yeah, hit me up at any of the events that I do make it to. I don't make it to a lot, but I'll be at FDIC. And yeah, you're teaching this year at FDIC, about. right? You're going to be doing your. Uh, your class hazmat hot zone rescues the gray area and, uh, you've been doing that for many years now. So looking forward to seeing you there. That's probably be the first time we actually meet face to face, but, uh, brother, thank you for taking an hour out of your day today to spend some time with me and share some insight with our guests uh, or with our community. So thank you, brother. appreciate it. Stay right there. I'm just going to sign off the podcast. I'll get right back to you. Okay. All right. Great. Everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Phil Ambrose. Battalion Chief out of L.A. County area in California, HazmatNation.com, HazmatNation on social media, and he has a company that we talked about before, HazSim, H-A-Z-S-I-M.com. Check it out if you're in the market for training and teaching tools for the street-level firefighter. That's the place you want to go. 
Chief Ambrose, thanks for joining me. Thank you for tuning in. And, uh, well, take this conversation. Take this conversation back to the firehouse. Talk about the job, because when we talk about the job, we're making the job better. We'll see you at the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Jeremy, National Fire Radio. National Fire Radio.